This podcast is brought to you by Metamora Martial Arts, teaching karate and self-defense techniques to children, teens, and adults since 2002. Check them out at metamoramartialarts.com and like Metamora Martial Arts on Facebook. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 4 of the Martial Arts Podcast. If this feels like deja vu, I assure you it is not. I accidentally called last month's episode with Eddie Parker episode 4. That was actually episode 3. This, rest assured, is episode 4. I am your host. My name is Adam Bockler. I'm a school owner, I'm an author, and apparently I'm inept at counting, but that's okay because most importantly, I am a martial artist. I've been studying martial arts for almost 11 years now and I love getting to talk to other people who love to do martial arts too. Before we go any further, this is a podcast supported by martial artists just like you, so rate, download, subscribe on iTunes or at adambockler.com. You can like the Martial Arts Podcast on Facebook. Let me know how I'm doing. Ask me questions I can answer on the next show, or let me know if you have any great ideas for somebody that you would like to hear on the Martial Arts Podcast. This episode's guest is Mr. Joe Walker. If you live in or near Peoria, Illinois, chances are that you've seen or you've heard ads for his school, the Academy of Okinawan Karate. Mr. Walker has been studying martial arts since 1960. 1960! That's 54 years! That's incredible! He's a world champion fighter, and he's one of the chief instructors of the Shiriru style of karate. This podcast, to be quite honest, is one that I did not think that I would ever make, uh, and the reason for that, I actually need to go and give you a brief history. Uh, Mr. Walker and I did not have a relationship prior to uh, recording this interview. So far, I've asked guests to be on the Martial Arts Podcast because I know them fairly well, but the first time I ever met Mr. Walker was yesterday. I'm recording this the day after we shot the interview, and uh, the first time I ever met him was when I walked into his school with my microphone and with my backpack that had all of my equipment in it. Mr. Walker taught my karate instructors, Joe Shinakis and Dave Hockey, from the 1980s to the early 2000s, and of course, you can hear Dave Hockey on episode one. And this episode actually almost featured Joe Shinakis, but we had some scheduling conflicts, so hopefully I'll get him on to talk about what he's been up to within the next few months. Anyway, by the time I started training under Mr. Shinakis in 2003 and Mr. Hockey in 2004, they were no longer training with Mr. Walker. Because of my lineage, though, I'd known about him. Uh, it was just impossible not to. In 2010, I was unable to attend Metamoral Martial Arts classes because my college class load uh, was just too much at the time. I, I had some scheduling conflicts going on. So I actually visited the Academy of Okinawan Karate on my mini tour of other martial arts programs in the area. I took the introductory class for the Agana system Mr. Walker talks about in this episode, partially because I was just curious about the system, and partially because I really wanted to meet him in person. He wasn't there that night. Uh, I don't know what he was doing, but uh, we didn't end up getting to meet um, fast forward four years to a recent Saturday morning, and I'm sitting at my dining room table, eating my oatmeal and checking Facebook, as per usual, and wouldn't you know, it's Mr. Walker. He asked me if I had a phone number for someone, so I replied and I gave it to him. The next morning, he sent me another message saying he'd enjoyed the second episode of the Martial Arts Podcast with Steve Aldis. On a whim, I'd asked him if he'd be interested in doing the show, he sent me his number, and I called him during the week to set something up. This story is part of the reason about why I started the Martial Arts Podcast in the first place. I wanted to build relationships, both for me personally and the hopes that it would help further unite the strong martial arts community that we have here in Peoria, and I really hope this episode does that. Before we get started into this episode of the podcast, there is a name that Mr. Walker forgets during the course of our conversation. After we finished recording, 
the episode, he rushed to his computer to find the name on Facebook, and that name is Seisho Tanahara. Mr. Walker apologized that he couldn't remember on the spot, but I think we can cut him some slack given all of the other great information and stories he shares throughout the episode. All that said, here's our conversation. I started in judo in 1960, and uh, I had seen a TV program that depicted both karate and judo, and I wanted to do karate. But back then, they wouldn't let kids do karate. Kids had to do judo. Karate is punching and kicking and blocking and striking and stancing. And that's way too dangerous for kids. They need to do throwing and pinning and choking and arm locks. And at least that was a philosophy then. And the main reason it was philosophy then, the judo guys owned the schools. And so the judo guys would channel the majority of people into, into judo. And the karate guys paid a little rent and, and taught whoever they could get. But... Uh, I did judo from 1960 to about 1968, and in 1968, I, I meant, by this time, karate was in charge. Judo had dwindled, and karate had come of age. Now, why is that? Why the, why the change? Well, a number of things happened. One of the most important things that happened was uh, uh, judo, judo's, when I started in judo, my first judo lesson went like this. We bowed on, we warmed up, and they said, lay on your back, put your feet flat on the floor, lift your head off the floor, slap the mat with both hands. Okay, do that again. Do it again. Do it again. I'll be back. Keep doing it. An hour later, they, that was the end of my lesson. They kept, they, they kept me on falling for one month. At the end of the month, I was really good at falling. But at the end of the month, most people would quit. Yeah. My mother was a school teacher, and the concept of paying for lessons and not taking them was beyond her. If if she paid for a month's lessons, I was going to. But I liked it. I mean, you know, I wasn't smart enough to be bored, so I just I just kept slapping the mat and kept coming. And uh, judo has a a really high pass fail ratio. In other words, if, if with karate I can teach you how to do a punch, and then later I can teach you how to do the stance, and then I can teach you how to do the punch in the stance, then I can teach you how to do a different stance. Then I can teach you how to transition from one stance to another stance and then utilize that power to power that punch. Judo, you, you can't teach judo like that. Judo is all partner work. And if you grab the guy and you, and you try to do a throw and he doesn't fall down, you immediately know he didn't do it right. Yeah. Where karate, you can, you can slowly bring that student along and, and he feels good all the way through. So it was a natural thing that karate people started being on forefront, but then uh, Hollywood helped. Bruce Lee hit uh, the uh, TV screen with uh, Green Hornet, and then uh, that was followed by other shows. And that really—I mean, Hollywood really motivated it, and uh, uh, that's why you saw it, the change. And by that time, I switched over to karate in the, in October of '68, late September, early October. And I've been doing karate ever since. I continue to do judo. I've never stopped doing judo. And I just do karate more. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me a little bit about, your, were you here in Peoria? Um, I, I was. The first judo school I went to was on the bottom of Main Street Hill. And it was upstairs. There was a great big long stair. It looked like you're climbing the stairway to heaven. Uh, and it, it seemed like a big room to me, but you know, it's like your grade school, you go back and the whole thing shrunk. So if I imagine that building was still, had still survived, it would look a lot smaller now. 
uh, I was there to tell, for, for economic reasons, they closed up the school and moved to the YMCA. For whatever reason, my parents didn't want me at the YMCA, they wanted me in a real school, so they took me to a different school up at the top of Main Street Hill. It's in the same block as uh, Running Central was years ago. Running Central wasn't there at the time. And then that school moved down across from the Madison Theater, and then later it moved up to Knoxville. And uh, I switched over from judo to karate down across from the Madison Theater. And then uh, I, I stayed, and that was Mr. Keppel's school, and I stayed with the Keppel organization until 1976. Uh, they had a inner thing going on where the, the chief instructor of the school split off from the head guy, and he started his own school. And I ended up with him. Uh, that was between them. I had nothing to do with me. I wasn't. I, I tried to stay out of the middle of it. But you know, uh, when when they split up, you you can't. You, it's hard to go to both schools at the same time. Uh, so I ended up at at uh, the chief instructor school, who was Randy Holman, and uh, I was there for about two years. And then he decided he wasn't a businessman. He sold the school to me, and he left town, and that's how that's how I ended up in charge. Okay, so then that, this was mid seventies or uh, late seventies okay. uh, that I took over. He, uh, Mr. Keppel and Randy Holman had gone on a trip to Asia in nineteen seventy six with Grandmaster Trius, and when they came back, uh, that's when their split happened, and, uh, and then it was seventy nine when I when I took over. The, the school that he had started. Mm -hmm. How did you get together with Grandmaster Trius? Um, when I started karate in, in uh, 68, 1969, the summer, my sister was living in Arizona and, I, and my mother, my sister had had a child. My mother wanted to go out and see the child. I convinced my mother to go to uh, Phoenix where Grandmaster Trius was, where I had an aunt. So we visited my aunt and I went in and met Grandmaster Trius. I just walked in the school. I didn't really expect to meet Grandmaster Trius at that time. So you were aware of who he was? Oh yeah, well he taught the people who were here in Peoria. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and I was a United States Karate Association member, he was the head of the USKA. I just going to see the USKA headquarters. You know, uh, I didn't know really know what to expect, but I walked in and a guy greeted me and I said, uh, I just wanted to see the headquarters, and they said, well, I'll introduce you to Grandmaster Trius then. And then uh, we talked a little bit. Uh, he had the guy show me around the school, and then he took me to breakfast, and he came back, and he said, I want to see you run some kata. And uh, me, I ran all, all the katas I knew. And I probably knew a lot of katas compared to the average guy at my rank. I was a yellow belt. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have any structure to the teaching methods. So the, the instructors just taught whatever they wanted. And if the instructor felt like teaching a kata that day, he taught a kata. And since I never missed a class, before I, while I was a yellow belt, I had, had I was running 30 kata. Wow. Yeah. Well, like I said, the, the instructor walked in that day and he said, well, I think I'll teach you this kata. That's the kata he taught. And anybody who was in the class learned it. Now, the trick was, after you learned it, keep working it. And a lot of guys would learn it, and they'd stop working it, and so they wouldn't retain it. But I never missed a class, and made sure I worked on what I learned. So, so since I just watched me wa work a lot of kata, 
And then uh, before I left, he I had a he taught me a kata named Jute, which means ten hands. And uh, it's a rather unique Okinawan kata because it doesn't have a, a Sikinzuki in it. Most Okinawan katas have at least one or a whole bunch. And this had zero, and so it was a, a little different than what else we did. As you were running your katas for him, uh, did he critique you along the way, or was he just kind of watching? He was watching to see that uh, things were being taught the same in uh, Peoria and Arizona. He didn't criticize my kata at that time. Uh, I had a different teacher. He just wanted to make sure that, that it was being done similarly in both places. I doubt if we were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, in 1972, he standardized the system. And so if you were, if you were a brown belt in 1972, which I was, uh, you had to take your test over. And one kid goes, uh, Sensei, that, does that mean I have to take my brown belt test over? He said, no. Good. You have to take your yellow belt, blue belt, green belt, purple belt, and brown belt test over. We don't want to know that you can do your brown belt stuff the way we do it. We want to know you can do all your stuff the way we did it. So most people who were a higher rank took a year to, to get, get ready and take that test. So for a year, almost everybody in our style, Shuru, stayed in, in position if they had any rank. Now, if you were yellow belt, it wasn't that big a deal. Mm -hmm. But if you, you had a high rank and you had to do all these tests over, it was a big deal. And I was supposed to go for my black belt just before that happened. So that meant my black belt was delayed one year. Now, that's not, that's not a complaint. I think the standards were the most important thing that ever happened to the system. The fact that we all had to learn to do it just like what was being done in Phoenix was very, very important. Uh, so I, I think it was a good thing. That year didn't hurt me. I've survived. I'm okay. Yeah. Made you better. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Made us all better. Now, um, as, as you guys went along, you got a little bit closer with Grandmaster Trius, and I assume you guys worked closer together. How did that relationship evolve over time? Um, well, a lot of the guys from uh, Peoria went in 1976 on a trip to Asia. I went 10 years later in 86, and we went to, uh, we went to Tokyo, Japan, and then we went to Kyoto, then we went to Okinawa, then we did a big loop and ended up in Hong Kong, and then we went up to Seoul, Korea, and then we spent a week to resting up in Hawaii. Not that we wanted to. It was just necessary to rest up in Hawaii after that much, much touring. And so we, uh, and, and Sensei was a fun guy. Uh, I have a friend, Dale Benson, and he and I get together about once a year and just tell Grandmaster Trio stories. And uh, we both agree that the karate was just all a bonus. The, the fun part was just hanging out with Sensei. <laughs> what were, could you give me some examples? Uh... Well, Sensei was, uh, he, he had unique ways of getting what, we, what he wanted. Um, he had... Lots and lots of IDs. Uh, he had an ID that showed he was a disabled veteran, and he was a disabled veteran. He uh, uh, had an injury to his ear, to his stomach during the war, and uh, so he had a disability. He had a uh, ID that showed he was a former POW, and he was a former former POW. He'd been captured by the Japanese and had escaped. But those would come out at various times. 
one time we were in Hong Kong. We got to Hong Kong very late at night, and the hotel didn't have our, our rooms ready. So the whole team is sitting there in the lobby. It's a beautiful hotel. It's gorgeous. Hotel, whole room is sitting there in the lobby. And my buddy, George Sheridan, George and I did all the fighting on that tour. So uh, when it was time to step up and have a match, we were the guys who stepped up and had a match. But anyway, George was standing up by the desk, and uh, Sensei went up and said uh, to the to the person behind the desk, uh, "My name's Bob Trius. I was uh, I fought for this area. I helped free it from the Japanese. I was a disabled veteran. I was a POW. I really need to get into my room because I I'm a disabled veteran, and I got to get this leg off." Well, Sensei didn't have a artificial leg and George is standing there and listening to what he's saying all of a sudden George goes <laughs> but since they didn't miss a beat and the guy looks up at him he goes okay okay you get penthouse so since they walks over and he goes Joe uh, I'm going to the penthouse you guys have fun waiting for your room to get ready and I said sensei you're going to leave us sitting here all night he's all right all right wait here and he goes back and he goes uh that lady over there that, that lady Maria she uh, really needs to get her to her room, too, because she has medication in her bag. And she needs to take her medication. She's extremely litigious. A lot of people don't know what the word litigious means, but litigious means apt to sue. And uh, I don't even know if the, if the guy behind the, the desk knows what it means. But all of a sudden he goes, okay, okay, okay. Everybody get penthouse. So, uh, and then he figured out he had penthouses for everybody but one couple. And so since they took the regular room, we all went up to the penthouses. And these were the most gorgeous rooms you ever saw. They were the top floor of Hong Kong, overlooking the um, overlooking the the view to the Hong Kong Island. Just super gorgeous rooms. And uh, uh, we we had a blast running around Hong Kong and then going back to these great rooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of fun. Now you mentioned uh, the fighting on the tour, but we'll... Were you guys just fighting, or was it demonstrations, or? Often we would do a demonstration, and they would do a demonstration, or we would work out with them. Uh, the, the first time it happened, we, were, we went to Hisataka's dojo in uh, Tokyo, Japan. And His, Hisataka sensei is the head of Koshiki. Koshiki is fighting in armor. And uh, we're not talking about kendo, where you wh- whack each other with sticks. We're talking about punching, kicking, elbows, and knees. But you wear armor when you do it. So you can hit the guy pretty close to full power, and there's no injuries. Mm-hmm. Now, if there is an injury, it's usually to your hand, because you hit the guy and you don't have a good fist, you break your hand. But anyway, um, there were four of us males on the team, and we went to this dressing room, a tiny little dressing room. There's four of us, and uh, we all got in there, and one guy, I won't mention his name, he goes, uh, uh, have you guys ever worn this stuff before? And we went, no. He goes, well, I haven't. It's a bunch of crap, and I ain't good at doing it. And he stomped out. And the other three of us, uh, myself, George Sheridan, and Kenny Keegan, all geared up. Well, Kenny had had his foot operated on right before the trip. And so uh, Sensei pulled me aside and said, tell Kenny not to fight, because I don't want him to mess up that footwork. So I pulled Kenny aside and said, Sensei, I don't want you to hurt that foot. Don't be fighting and then since they, you know, we've been working out with them. And then since they said, uh, Joe, you and George put on the equipment and, and spar with each other to see what it's like. And we said, oh, yes, sir. And he said, so warm up, put the equipment on, try it out. We said, yes, sir. So, you know, you warm up differently for sparring than you do for other things like kata, 
basics. So George and I start warming up. The Japanese can see we're warming up. They can see how we're warming up. And all of a sudden, the Japanese go, all of a sudden, Sensei goes, my guy would want to fight your guys. And I looked at George, and he looked at me. I said, did you say that? He said, I didn't say that. I said, okay, here we go. So they put the equipment on us, and a guy, a British guy, was putting the equipment on me, and I was nervous. And this is my first day in Japan. I'd flown all night. Never fought a Japanese guy before, you know, let alone a Japanese guy in Japan in a Japanese dojo. So, mm-hmm. and uh, he puts, he started, the British guy's putting this equipment on me and starting to tie it on for me. He goes, now remember your face sticks out an extra three inches. And I said, okay, shut up, just, just you know, get it on. So he puts it on. I'm all nervous. I, well, as soon as I did that, the, the, the face shield uh, just, Totally fogged up. I couldn't see a damn. I couldn't. I couldn't see a thing. And so I walk up to the 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 thing, the, the line, and and all the air holes were down at the bottom of the face shield. So I lifted my head up so I could kind of see through the air holes. And as I did that, some of the hot air that I breathed out started to escape, and it started. But then they said begin, and I put my head down, and I saw the guy was going to punch me, but his hand was going to miss me. Mm-hmm. And I got ready to counter him, and then it clipped my face shield. And whipped my head around. I said, you know, your face sticks out an extra three inches. Should have listened to the British guy and tell him, instead of telling him to shut up. Uh, <laughs> but then we started fighting. And, and uh, fighting in armor is different than fighting. You know, you're not trying to tap the guy. Mm-hmm. You're trying to whack the guy. And so you're trying to hit him really hard so that the armor makes a loud thud. And so I could see that he was going to do a rear leg round kick. And I blocked it, but he was hitting me with full power. And he powered through my block, and it still hit the equipment, still made some noise. But I caught his leg, and I swept him and stomped on him. And in competition, that would be considered a, a win if you stomped the guy. Uh, I, and it, it is a legal technique. I didn't do anything naughty. Uh, so Sensei was pretty happy that I, that I threw the Japanese guy and stomped him, and we when, when we got in the cab, since they said, uh, Joe, you know who that guy you fought was? I said, no, sir. He said, well, that was the world champion. And George was fighting the number two guy. And George Sheridan is an awesome fighter and did a, did a great job with his guy, too. So every time we'd go to a dojo, it would be the same way. Since they'd come over to us, you know, like we do our demo, and since they'd come over to us and said, now this time, don't fight them. Fight each other. And go, oh, yes, sir. And then as soon as we, he says, now warm up, get ready. As soon as we start to warm up, he says, my guys want to fight your guys. <laughs> and, and, you know, you would think at some point we'd wise up, but, you know, he was always so sincere. Now, this time I don't want you to fight the other guys. I just fight each other. Don't, you know, just give them a demonstration of how we fight. And we, we fought, probably the most famous people we fought was we fought Shinjo Sensei's people in Okinawa. Now, if you get to Okinawa and you ask about, Kiyohide Sensei, Kiyohide Shinjo Sensei. Everybody in Okinawa will know that's the guy who's known for sparring and known for fighting. And uh, we we went. He and I met at this hotel bar. The, our team was there, and, and he happened to be there. And I had my gi bag with me. And he looked at me and said, "You come to Okinawa to work out, didn't you?" And I said, "Yes, sir, I did." He said, you come to my dojo Tuesday. He says, sir, we're going to be leaving before Tuesday. Hmm. You come to my dojo tomorrow. 
So he was very nice. He called all his people. And we thought, you know, since he was doing this on a spur of the moment, there might be three. There was 24 black belts. Wow. Uh, approximately. You know, it's been a while. And one green belt. And uh, the, we, uh, he came out, and part of his demonstration, he, uh, one of his favorite techniques is what they call nacho giddy. And, and nacho giddy, they kick with the knuckle of the big toe. So they fold the big toe down, they kick with the knuckle, and he broke, I believe, four boards uh, with his nacho giddy. And then he showed us how he would hold his foot up and he would whack the end of his toe with like a thing that looked like a, a, a rather small paddle, and that would condition the end of his toe. And uh, his green belt, who was a paraplegic, and uh, his, uh, uh, I, his name's slips my mind right now but anyway he's a paraplegic he walked on crutches he uh ran sanchen for us and then he put his fist out in a seeking position and they hit it with a baseball bat and then they propped the baseball bat up against the wall and he took his forearm and smashed it in the baseball bat bat until the baseball bat uh broke now this was an authentic louisville slugger baseball bat it wasn't a flimsily made bat that made to look good so uh, we were pretty impressed with their with their people and and then you know since I said you know you guys will fight each other and then we got to fight their guys and and uh, this was in the 80s uh, recently a friend of mine was uh, said something about back in the 80s da, 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 da. he says that's when people that's when the people were really fighting and I go well yeah it was pretty rough da, da, da. and he he kind of well you don't I don't think you understand I said no I think I do he said no I don't think you do back in this was when it, I said you know the people you're talking about and he goes yeah I said well I was one of them uh, he said what I said the people you were talking about the Americans who came and fought the Okinawans in that time period. I was one of the Americans who fought the Okinawans. So I have a pretty good understanding. And it was rough. But, uh, you know, nobody died. Mm -hmm. uh, people got hit. Uh, the thing I was not, wasn't used to is the Okinawans think of the knee as a target. And so my opponent kept kicking me in the knee. Now, are you armored up with the knee? Oh, no, no, not in Okinawa. There's no arm. Yeah, in Okinawa, they don't normally use armor. There was no armor. There was no foot pads. There was no hand pads. There was no nothing. So you had bare knuckles, pretty Bare much. knuckles. Not pretty much. Bare knuckles. <laughs> no tape. No no nothing. It, you get a gi, and smart guys wear a cup. But uh, that's it. Um, and, yeah, my opponent was kicking me in the knee, and I was kicking him in the ribs. And... Uh, and then we went out and had sushi and beer. Uh, by the time everything was over, we were, we were friends again. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a big deal. Um, my opponent, whose name I do not know to this day, was the Okinawan Kata champion at the time. Uh, and all, all of Shinjo Sensei's people were good sparrers. And he had bl plenty of black belts, and he, he stuck, I'm sure he stuck out his two best, not his two worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and George's guy was a good strong fighter, and George Sheridan's a good strong fighter. So we had a good strong fight. We hit each other. They, and then you know, like I said, we had a beer together. Things were good. 
Why why the knuckle of their toe? What what was special about that? Well, you can get more penetration with the knuckle of your toe than you can with the with the ball of foot. Understand, the Okinawans I often develop what they call a personal weapon. This is something that they rely on and something and Shinjo Sensei's dojo, okay, let's go back in time. The Japanese started thinking of, of karate as a sport. And one time the JKA came to uh, Okinawa to spar. And they started calling them all the Okinawans, and all the Okinawans were going, no, we don't want to spar with you. And when they got to Weishiru, Weishi Sensei said, yes, come Tuesday. And so he called up Shinjo, who was his student, and we're talking about the Kiyohide's father. And uh, he said, come, and the JKA wants to spar with us. And so the, all the Okinawans are sitting there waiting, and all of a sudden they hear this horrible racket. Clack, 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 clack. And the Japanese were walking down the cobblestone street in Gaeta, which are wooden sandals. Well, it makes a horrible noise. And all the Japanese had kimonos on over their dojos. So the Okinawans come out and they look at them. Now they're an extra three inches higher because the gaitas give you about three to five inches in height. And they have kimonos over their dojo, they look uh, over their gi, they look really big. And uh, uh, Weishi Sensei said, please come in. And so when they came in, they had to take off their gaita, they had to take off the kimonos, and now uh, the Okinawans could see they aren't so big. And so they said, uh, please, show us your kata. And the JKA said, we do not run kata, we, we fight. Said, oh, please sit down, we will show you our kata. And so they had a guy come out and, and run Sanchin. When they run Sanchin, they beat the hell out of each other. And so you know, they're kicking him and punching him. And the Japanese are looking at this and they're, you know, they're thinking, this looks pretty nasty. And uh, so then two of the... Okinawan fighters came out, two of the Japanese fighters came out, and Shinjo Sensei's father was the first guy to come up, and rather than punch the guy in the chest with a seekin, he punched the guy in the neck with an extended knuckle punch. Mm. And the Japanese weren't used to this, and so he's kicking him in the belly with his toe, he's punching him in the neck, and they're, he's getting a lot more penetration, he's knocking the snot out of this guy, and he's knocking the snot out of this guy in a way that he's not used to getting the snot knocked out of him. Um, I'm sure the Japanese fighters were good, strong fighters, but they're surprised by these tactics. And so, after he beats the style of the first Japanese guy, the second Japanese comes out and lines up with the other Weishiru fighter, and Shinjo Sensei, his father, walked over and pushed the guy out of the way and said, I'm not done yet. Bowed in and commenced to beat on the second guy. And then the Japanese said, that, thank you for letting us come, and they all left. Um, so these guys were the guys who were known as the best best fighters in, in Okinawa. Uh, and uh, so those were the guys we were sparring with. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, again, uh, there were, by the time we were there, there wasn't a lot of animosity. There were some earlier matches that were even more spirited. Um, but Everybody was pretty cool, calm, and collected our night. Yeah. Now, what's the what's it been like since then? I mean, have 
to uh, different schools from America still go over there and have competitions against Okinawans and Japanese? Or? I've made about uh, a dozen trips. Um, yeah, there's the, the Okinawans have had, the Japanese have uh, tournaments or the Okinawans have had world championships. Uh, there was an organization called WUKO, which was a very good organization. It's developed into WKF. I haven't kept up on it as much. I used to be a uh, international referee. Uh, in a, in about 92, I retired from competition and, and decided to focus on very intensely on, on teaching in my dojo and teaching locally. Um, but uh, I, I still go to Okinawa and I still go to uh, Asia every once in a while because it's good to train and good, you know, you don't want to forget what it's like to be in a class just because you've been around for a while. But once you forget what it's like to be told what to do and, and, and then you forget you, you forget that these other people have feelings too. So I like to get in there and uh, uh, I, in 1999 uh, the head of the Mariyoshi system died and they brought the number the, the new guy who was in charge of the dojo over and his name was Gakia Sensei and uh, uh, we I, I wasn't yeah that was that was 98 99. Yeah, I was 99, I think. But anyway, I met him, worked out with him, and then I was invited to demonstrate at the first Matayoshi Memorial Festival, and I invited two of my black belts, Dave Hockey and Dave Benkendorf, to come with me, and we went and trained. I always say a month, and my wife says, oh, it was only three weeks. Three weeks is a long time in a different country. Uh, three weeks, and three weeks, we... Uh, we were in what they call a businessman hotel. A businessman hotel is one person per room. And uh, it, the name of that hotel was the Sankyo Hotel. And of course, Sankyo in martial arts means like uh, the third rank or third rate. And I always said the Sankyo Hotel, their goal was to be third rate. They hadn't quite made it yet, but that was their goal. Um, so it wasn't the nicest hotel in town. Now, the people who, who the, the staff and the owner were, were super nice people, but it wasn't the nicest hotel in town. But that's where we were. And uh, there was a little uh, uh, TV in my room, but it had a coin slot on it. And I said, there's no way I'm putting money in that coin slot to watch TV in a language I can't understand that well. So I'm not doing that. And then we went back in 2004. We went up to our rooms. There was the TV. There was the coin slot. We came back. We're down. And I was talking to my student, John Morrell. And I said, did you see the stupid coin, sl coin slot on the uh, TV? He said, yeah, that's for the porn. I said, what? He said, it's for the porn. I said, what porn? I said, he said, uh, you can watch any TV you want. But if you want to watch porn, you got to pay for it. You mean I could have sat there watching TV for for a month? And of course, here, here's where my wife goes. It's only three weeks. Yeah, I could have watched anything I wanted as long as it wasn't porn. I could have watched it. I wouldn't have had to pay for it. And go, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I felt a little dumb. But uh, we we've gone several times, and I don't. I retired from competition in '92. Uh, I came out of retirement, and 15 years later, competed. Uh, about five years in a row, haven't competed since then. 
I'm neither officially retired nor officially am I got my hat in the ring. I could I can jump in if I choose to, but I haven't competed for a while. Um, but yeah, there's still guys going over there, and and, world, and Okinawa's had a couple of world championships, and uh, but there's a lot of more people in Okinawa who are not interested in sport. They're just interested in training and working out and exchanging knowledge, and uh, they don't care if they win a tournament or not. They just want to keep running. Yeah. There's a lot of people in Okinawa who are still working out, and they're in their 70s, and they're in their late 70s. Uh, and some of them are amazingly good in their 70s. Yeah, I read some some books, and I think even in like the 17 and 1800s, you know, people were living to old age, there, very old age, like in their 80s and 90s, which was not normal for the time. There are more people who are over 100 years old in Okinawa, percentage-wise, mm-hmm. than any other place in the world. In 1945, during the Battle of Okinawa, we wiped out one-third of the Okinawan people. So, since we wiped out one-third of the Okinawan people in less than 100 years ago, and there's more 100-year-olds there than any place else, think of what would, how many they'd have if they didn't have the Battle of Okinawa. Uh, and that's not an indictment against the Battle of Okinawa, just just a, a statement of fact. And there's a number of reasons for it. Their, their, their uh, diet is better than ours. Their uh, attitude is better than ours. Uh, you know, they're just real laid back and relaxed. And they believe in working out. They, they tend to eat, do some kind of exercise or karate or kobudo or Okinawan dancing is very, very popular. And they keep doing that into a ripe old, old age. Uh, and that's why they outlive us. Some Canadian researcher went to this guy's house in Okinawa and there was a man exercising in the front yard and he said uh, is this where Mr. Shimabuku lives and he said yes he said would you tell him I'm here he said I am Mr. Shimabuku he said well there must be something wrong he said what he said it says here you're over 100 years old he said I am over 100 years old he said but you were exercising in the front yard because that is why I am over 100 years old wow. So they have the concept, just because you got old doesn't mean you stop. Um, and and most of them, they they don't mind watching sport, but they're not really interested in, in sparring. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, they might spar with you, but they don't care if somebody gets a medal or a trophy at the end. It's yeah. not important to them. Now, do you think, um, you know, along, along the same lines of Americans going over to uh, Okinawa, do you think there's anything to be said for if you're an American or if you're British or name any practically any nationality here, do you have to go back to the homeland, so to speak, to train? You don't have to. There, it, there is a plus about doing it. There, um, it's not that the it, it, it's you're meeting the people who were the the creators. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people in the United States who know a whole bunch about the martial arts. That just means you're seeing the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you've read Richard Kim before, right? Yes. Yep. Richard Kim tells a story about this guy named Sato. He's he's a Japanese guy, and he's in a in a Japanese room, and he's everything he does. The instructor, the head teacher, just you did that wrong. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. 
and you did it horribly wrong. And yet he's the best student. But no matter what he does, he, he and finally Sato just quits and goes to another school. And everybody else in the school goes, oh, we cannot believe Sato left. Obviously he was grooming him to take over. And so Richard Kim goes, and Richard Kim didn't grow up over there. He grew up in Hawaii. He goes, I not, must understand the, the Japanese culture so I don't make the same mistake that he made. And there's something to be said you, to, in understanding the culture surrounding the art you study. Um, and plus, I just enjoy trying to understand the culture. Now, I, there's a lot of things about it I don't get. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I've been studying the Okinawan culture and now I understand it. I'm saying I continue to study the Okinawan culture and I enjoy studying it. Most people here in the United States don't understand that Okinawa is a separate culture than Japan. Okinawans are a separate ethnic strain than Japan. The Okinawa, the Japanese come originally, and the Okinawans originally came from Indonesia. They can tell each other apart. They don't. The, uh, a Japanese won't look at an Okinawan and think he's talking to a Japanese. He knows he's talking to an Okinawan. Uh, same, th vice versa too. Most people don't understand there's there was a there is a separate Okinawan language. Now most people in Okinawa speak Japanese. A lot of them speak English. But I went to Idoman and I met a guy named Yamashiro Sensei, and he spoke no English and he spoke no Japanese. All we spoke was Okinawan. So we had one translator who translated from English to Japanese, another translator who translated Japanese oh to God. Okinawan, another translator who tra translated back to Japanese, and then the, and so it would go, you would watch the question go back and forth. And at first I didn't even catch on. And then somebody told me, well, he doesn't speak Jap Japanese. What, what does he speak? He speaks Okinawan. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> So let's, uh, we can fast forward a little bit. Um, you, uh, did you take over this school in the 70s? I'm, I, in 1979. Okay, because what I kind of like to it, get to is what it, it's been like, um, you know, teaching martial arts as opposed to being a, a student. Uh, well, I'm both, but uh, I love teaching. Uh, I, I've done it for a living for a long time. Um, one, one person, one person, uh, heard that I did martial arts for a living and he said and he said it just like this I like kids I like teaching kids God, I love them they're the future of karate if we don't teach children karate will die out if we only teach old men then we'll all die the same year and there'll be no more karate after that <laughs> and another guy uh, heard uh, that I did karate for a living he goes wow your wife must have a great job and I go she does and her boss is a super guy my wife works for me um, I, I I love doing. I had the best job in the world. I do exactly what I love doing. I do martial arts. I teach martial arts. Uh, if somebody asks me a question, I met a guy one time, uh, and he didn't want anybody who uh, was a client to talk to him in public. You just you come and talk to me at the office. I'll talk to you there. Don't don't even say hello. I love my students. I love talking to them. I love talking about martial arts. Uh, if you, if somebody asks me a question, I love explaining it to them. If I hate to leave the school, okay, I love the school. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I love my home. I love my family. I love my wife. But 
my wife works here. My kids, my kids um, are all involved in the martial arts to one extent or another. Uh, so it was something we always did together. Um, and, and that's that. Uh, I have been teaching in one form or another uh, since before I took karate. I was an assistant instructor in the judo class. Then I was, uh, they, they put me in charge of, a, of the basic class before I made yellow belt. Wow. So I've been teaching all along. Uh, and that's fine. I, uh, some people don't like to teach it. They probably shouldn't. But I enjoy the whole concept. Tell me a little bit about your instructors and, and your school now. Uh, sure. Um, well, we have the one in Peoria, and I teach as many of the classes as I can. Um, we have one school in Morton, and my son, Joseph Johnston, obviously is a stepson. Uh, he, t he runs the Morton School and teaches the Morton School. Joseph uh, is a fourth degree. He's an assistant chief instructor. I'm a chief instructor in Shiriru. He's an assistant chief instructor in Shiriru. Uh, so either place you're getting one of the higher ups in the system. Um, and... At our Eureka school, his student, Jake Colbertson, runs the school. We have a couple other programs here. Uh, we have uh, Agana, and Agana is an Israeli uh, hardcore combat self-defense program. Adults only, no good. Mm -hmm. And I teach that primarily, but Pat Golden helps me a lot. And then our fitness program, our aerobic kickboxing program, our, our, is run by... Uh, my son Tony Johnston, again, obviously a stepson, uh, and he's he's really made that class grow recently. He also teaches a ground combat class, which is is more sport oriented. Um, we have his ground combat class. We have also have Israeli Israeli ground survival. His ground combat class is what you do in a sportive nature. You and I are, are rolling around the ground, and we're trying to make the other guy slap. My Agana Ground Survival Program is about what happens if you're on the way to your car and somebody tackles you from behind and now you're rolling around the pavement. Uh, which Very is Very different scenarios. Extremely different scenarios cause you're, because if you're in a sport aspect and the guy slaps, he's saying, I quit, I give up. Yep. If we're in a combat situation and you slap, you're saying, good job, keep going. Uh, <laughs> So, so it's a yeah, it is a very different scenario, and uh, uh, Agana is another thing that has been a very interesting thing. I started teaching Agana about ten years ago, uh, about exactly ten years ago, and I had uh, made the acquaintance of Michael Lee Canary, who is uh, the first Oriental in the Israeli Commandos, and he was he, he was teaching this program, and uh, it. He said, why don't you come and work out? How would you like to say you've worked out with Israeli commandos? How would you like to say that? I said, I'd like to say that. That sounds like fun. He says, okay, we work out 10 hours a day. Uh, it, it's one week. Here's how much it costs you. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm over 50 now. This is 10 years ago. I'm over 50 now. Can I still work out 10 hours a day? And I listened to that and I said, I have never worked out 10 hours a day. <laughs> Nobody works out 10 hours a day. What am I saying? And I thought, well, can I do it? I well, I don't know. Let's find out. And the first day was horrible. And the second day was worse. And the third day 
made the first two days look easy. And the fourth day wasn't too bad. And the fifth day, we only worked out five hours. Now, what, what, what were the workouts like? Um, it, mainly, the first two hours was basics. You know, punches, kicks, uh, and with uh, a little bit of uh, calisthenics sprinkled in. Not a whole lot. Unless you screw up. Now, Mike didn't really understand that we're martial artists. We're not actually recruits in the Israeli commandos. And the uh, beginning, he, he makes a little speech. He goes, first he says, everybody line up. Only Mike doesn't say everybody. He uses other uh, terms. Uh, Mike has a hard time getting through a sentence without an F-bomb. Um, he, he's military, and uh, he can do it. He just prefers not to. And uh, Mike also believes in always making fun of everybody's ethnicity. If he can figure out that what where you came from, he will make fun of you for it. Now understand, he's half American, half Vietnamese. Born in Vietnam, adopted by Israeli parents, moved to Israel, drafted. So he's never been in a room where there's two people like him. And so he's probably gotten a lot of flack about being the Oriental guy. Or being the half American guy. So... He's getting even with everybody else. But he, he told us to line up, and he says, if at any point in the next two days you decide this is not the class for you, you see my buddy Randy, he give you money back, you go home. On the morning of the third day, we give you tests, and we decide this not the you're not for our class, we give you your money back, and, and you go home. I will hit everybody in the class three times. All the men and all the women, there is no prejudice to you. Let's get started. Now, if Mike said, change partners, four, three, two, one. Everybody in the room better have changed partners by the time he said one. One time we didn't do it. We messed up. We messed up. He says, now we must do 20 minutes of military calisthenics. <laughs> and so for the next 20, first we had to jump your your buddy got bent over put his hands on the knees you had to jump over him you know like that game you do as a kid leapfrog leapfrog yeah. exactly thank you and then you got down on your hands and knees and you crawl between his legs and then you jump back up and you jump back over him you had to do that 50 times in a row jump over him crawl through 50 times in a row then we had to crawl from one end of the room to the other in a low crawl position and sprint back as fast as we could 10 times that took about 20 minutes. Hmm. And that was in the middle of everything else. So the that's the thing that made it even harder. But just try punching and kicking for 10 hours. Yeah. And and I uh, I'll be honest about it. We got a 1 hour break for lunch, 9 hours. So you don't Still, have to, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like like somebody somebody listening punches and kicks for 9 hours. Now by the way, I've been to seminar situations where we did 10, 12 hours one day. But we didn't do 10, 12 hours four days in a row. Yeah. Let alone, we didn't do nine, we've never, I've never done nine hours. And the intensity level was very high. There was very little talking. It, 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 there was a, a little explanation as possible and I'll get to work. Um, one day we were doing a drill where uh, we were, there were six different knife defenses we were doing. And at first, I would attack you with the knife. It was a rubber knife, of course. And you would either say two, and I'd have to attack you with the number two attack. Mm 
or you'd say five after that do the number five. So you knew what it was coming in. We did that for two minutes. Then I gave you the knife and I did it for two minutes. Then you gave me the knife and I would go four and I would attack you with the fourth attack. So I'm telling you ahead of time. Of course you're going four. Well four four four. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, time you figure out what it is, you know, it's, it's happening, buddy. <laughs> it's happening. But um, and then I give you the knife and you do that. And then the next two minutes. So now you've already been going four minutes nonstop. I'm not going to tell you. You're not going to tell me. It's just going to happen. During that two minutes, he did a harassment drill, and he walked around and punch and kick everybody. He'd kick you from behind. He'd punch you from behind. He, you know, he'd, come, he'd just come and run into you full force and knock you down, start screaming at you to get up off the floor. And uh, uh, so there was a lot of, a lot of people were under a lot of stress. Uh, but it was survivable. One guy quit before the first break. One guy flunked out on the third day. How many were in the class? 30 guys passed. Everybody was a professional martial artist. Nobody would spend the money required. It was a four-digit number. Yeah. And and how many people have a week to take off to do something like this? So you're in, if you're going to spend, we're talking about at least 1000 you're probably hoping to get that back. You're you're not going to spend a thousand dollars to do it and not get it back. Right. So, um, that's that. And it was a fun class. It is a fun class. I still teach it. I love it. Uh, and uh, I I've had people say, "Well, I do traditional karate." I go, "Me too." When I get done, I go over and do agana. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I I don't. We don't need to be. We don't need to be in opposition one to another. Uh, Traditional karate is a beautiful thing. I love tra- traditional karate. I love kabuto. I love judo. Uh, I also love agana. If if there were about another twenty four hours in a day, I'd do more. But uh, I only get twenty four hours just like everybody else. Yeah, that's great that you've been able to. I mean, that's definitely a unique combination to have. You know, between the arts. Well, most of the guys who who learned and certified at that time were already doing this because, you know, you want to have a school so you can teach it. Um, So I'm not as rare as you might think. Um, I think there's a a number of other people who are like me. I uh, I like the Israelis. They are a different breed. They they are very straightforward. they're not they're not always the friendliest bunch, but uh, that's okay. Yeah, and they're you know they have a unique situation, and even if they're living here now, they they grew up that way and they knew what it was like, and and it's a, it's a different it's different here. We're, very few of us are thinking every day that a, a rocket might suddenly mm-hmm. come and hit you on the way. Yeah, away. especially now. I mean, you know. yep, especially now. Um, but we don't want to talk about politics, do we? Oh no, we, <laughs> we don't need to go there. Um, I'm trying. To, we're we're almost out of time, actually, for for the show. Uh, do you have anything else that you'd like to add, or something that you'd like to talk about? Um, no. I, the only thing I really want to say is, is like I said, I, I have the best job in the world. I've really been lucky. Um, I've had great students. I've taught 17 world champions. Um, the, my students, uh, 
The only thing that 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 I've been luckier than with the schools with my family. I I, I uh, happen to have the most gorgeous wife in the world and the best kids and uh, uh, this is I've just been really lucky. Wow, what a great interview with Mr. Walker. You know, I talked to him uh, twice after the interview, actually, and uh, he's excited about coming on and doing another show, so I hope we can get him back here sometime soon. Now let's get into some upcoming events. August 2nd, it's Martial Arts for St. Jude at St. Paul Baptist Church in Peoria. I'll be presenting some material along with a handful of other martial arts Hall of Famers. That's really cool to say still. Uh, August 15th to the 17th, it's the 6th Annual Summer Camp in Wisconsin for sharethemartialarts.com. And finally, October 4th, Mr. Walker wanted me to ask you guys to save the date for a martial arts seminar that he's hosting at the Academy of Okinawan Karate in Peoria, and hopefully on a future episode I'll have a few more details about that for you, but keep, uh, keep the date saved in the meantime. Before I get out of here, I want to say thanks again to Mr. Walker for inviting me into his school. The really cool thing, I thought, was that even though we'd never met prior to our conversation, he spent another hour after our recording showing me uh, many photos in his dojo of his students and his trips abroad. Overall, meeting him was a great experience, and uh, I'm really happy that we were able to sit down and do this. Other than that, thanks to BJ Averly on the music, and thank you for listening. <laughs>